We are a generation of South Africans who have faced challenges and been given opportunities that our parents were not. We have seized the future with both hands and we will be the change we want to see in our nation. Our guests are orchestra conductors, mountaineers, investors and activists, pilots, winemakers and more. To listen, simply search for Change in One Generation wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by The Change Exchange. Helping you to better navigate life's changes. True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The older man hands over the keys to the car. It served him well, but now he's retired, he'll just need a smaller runaround. The money he makes from the sale will fund a much smaller car, and then he can put the rest into his retirement fund. He's going to need every cent that he can get now that neither he nor his wife are working. He's grateful to have found this charming and helpful man to handle the car sale, though. It's so easy to get scammed when selling privately that he's more than happy to hand over the transaction to a third party for a small share of the profit. What he doesn't know as he walks away from the exchange, is that not only will he never see his car again, but he'll never see any money either. And the next time he sees the charming middle-aged man, it will be in a courtroom. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 118. Go fly a kite. This episode is sponsored by Just Wellness. I will admit that this time of year scares me a little. Before I started the podcast, I didn't have this intense fear of getting flu and possibly having it impact my ability to record. But now, well, it pretty much would be a disaster. The more I hear about some of the really horrible flu strains that are going around right now, the more I'm grateful for the fact that I work from home. But there are times when I need to be around people, so upping my body's defenses is key. Just Wellness's range of olive leaf extract and combination tinctures have been a big part of that. I've been talking about their products for a while now and started using them too. Practice what you preach, you know? Some of their blends, like the Pelagonium, are highly valued as a remedy for several respiratory tract ailments, including acute bronchitis, and all the blends are antiviral, antimicrobial, anti-inflammatory, and a bunch of other really good antis. Using the blends sublingually, under your tongue, 
accelerates absorption into the bloodstream. So you aren't hanging around waiting for a tablet or a capsule to absorb. It's not too late to start benefiting from these products this winter because you can order from the comfort of your home on their online store at justwellness.co.za. And if you buy two products, they'll even deliver to your door for free. Thank you to Just Wellness for their support of True Crime South Africa. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming. And for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You. Yes, you, are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you to Tilana Lowe, Elsa Homan, Tasha, Karen Kotzenbach, and Tash Stanton for your support on Patreon, as well as Anjik Duku for your support on PayPal. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout out on the pod, and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me, as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Keba. I have absolutely no doubt that you are wholly confused and perhaps a little intrigued by the title of this episode. Is Nicole telling me to go away? Is she telling me to engage in outdoor activities that involve wind? No. And no. Kite flying is in fact the name for a type of crime I'm going to talk about today. If you're in the financial sector, you've likely heard the term. If, like me, you aren't, then you're probably hearing it for the first time. When I started researching this case... I thought it was a pretty standard fraud case with just a huge number of charges. But when I started to dig down, I was pretty blown away by this whole kite-flying thing. I didn't even know it was possible. Okay, enough of me dropping breadcrumbs. In researching this case, I used an episode of Distart Tian, as well as court documents and some media articles. So let's get into episode 118, Go Fly a Kite. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. 
Andres Keller, known as Andre to his friends and business associates, already had a bit of a checkered past by the time he arrived in Oatswern in the early 1990s. He was a man of many talents and had engaged in a wide range of business activities. Some people are like that. They get bored in certain industries and like to diversify. For Andre, though, it seems that this diversification was more of a necessity than a desire. You see, Andre very often ended up making some poor business choices in the various industries he worked in, which seemed to necessitate his moving on to a different space and a different group of people and customers. If you're thinking that sounds a little dodgy, well, yes, it is entirely that. In the 80s, for instance, Andre Keller dabbled in the insurance industry. By 1990, he'd been convicted of contravening the Insurance Act and was sentenced to nine months in prison or a 2,000 rand fine. He paid the fine and left the industry. Unfortunately, after having to pay back the victims of the crimes he committed in that case, he was also registered as an unrehabilitated insolvent person from a financial perspective. A person is referred to as an insolvent when their liabilities exceed their assets, and they're considered unrehabilitated if this situation is ongoing. As an unrehabilitated insolvent, Andre could not incur any credits, and he was required to advise any intended creditor of his status. He also couldn't open a business bank account in his name, or indeed even register a business with himself as a director or sole proprietor. Of course, Andre could work for someone and rehabilitate his financial position in that way, but it seemed he wasn't one for wanting to be an employee. And with his reputation more than a little in tatters, he moved to Oatswin to start again. Andre had always been a church-going man, and in this new town, he joined the local congregation at the earliest opportunity and started to make friends within the community. One of the men he connected with through church, called Gavin Smith, recalled feeling quite sorry for Andre. He seemed to have a really good business head, but also, according to him, he'd had a lot of really bad luck. So when Andre brought his friend Gavin some paperwork to sign in 1992, which he said would help him to get back on his feet in business, the man didn't really hesitate. Andre explained that the paperwork was to set up a closed corporation, or CC, called Raylott Motors and that ownership, on paper, would be split between him, his wife, and Andre's wife. But Gavin didn't need to worry, Andre said. There was no risk to him. It would just be a paperwork thing, and he didn't have to contribute to the business in any way or take any responsibility. He would just essentially be helping a friend out. So Gavin and his wife added their signatures to the paperwork, which already had Andre's wife's signature on it. And for the most part, that was the last they thought of it. They'd done a good deed for a friend, and that was that. Andre had decided that he was going to try his hand at the second-hand car sales business. 
and he had a financier all lined up for Raylight Motors too. Kurs Stander was a businessman from George, which is about 60 kilometers from Oatswern. One of the main issues standing between Andre and his new business was that due to his insolvency, he couldn't open a business bank account or write checks, both of which were necessary to do business in the 1990s. And this was where Stander came in. Kostander agreed to open not one, but three different bank accounts for Raylott Motors and give Andre Keller signing rights on all three accounts, which means he could issue checks. Now, by law, Stander was obligated to advise the banks that the man he was giving signing rights on his accounts was an unrehabilitated insolvent person, but he didn't. Also, if you, like me, think that three bank accounts with three different banks for one small business is a bit of overkill, then yes, you would be right. It was a giant red flag but unfortunately not one that would be picked up on until it was too late. Soon after the bank accounts were opened, Raylott Motors began to trade. There were several components to the business. On the one hand, people would come from surrounding areas to sign their second-hand cars over to Andre for him to sell on their behalf, and then Raylott Motors would take a portion of the proceeds. Another side of the business was arranging finance for certain customers who wanted to purchase vehicles but couldn't afford to do so in cash. And then sometimes, buyers would ask for specific vehicles to be sourced and brought in for them from across the country, and Raylott would provide that service too. Andre Keller hired a few staff members, and soon they started noticing some weird things happening. The first was that they were being sent to banks, sometimes three or four towns over, to deposit checks. They were specifically told which towns to go to and instructed that under no circumstances should they take a shortcut and visit a closer bank. Then they started to notice that not all of the sales that happened were being put through the books. And every Saturday, they had a visitor. Each Saturday, without fail, Kurs Stander would drive through from George to Oatswern. He would park outside Raylott Motors and wait. Then, within a few minutes, Andre Keller would come outside, take a briefcase from Stander, go into his office, and then return to Stander's vehicle with the same briefcase and hand it back to him. Then Stander would drive off. And the following Saturday, the process was repeated. Of course, small-town gossip was rife, and the staff members at Raylott couldn't help but wonder what was being handed over in the briefcase. It had to be money, but what was with all the cloak-and-dagger stuff? If Stander was owed money, couldn't he just take a check like everyone else? All their vehicle sellers, after all, were paid with checks. Some complained, saying they wanted alternate forms of payment, but Andre Keller was firm. It was a check or nothing. 
It also wasn't uncommon for angry sellers to phone in, complaining that the check they'd been issued had bounced. And without fail, Andre would get onto the phone, calm the situation down, and reassure the person that the funds would be available. And sure enough, he would sort it out with another check. Until the next angry phone call came. Railout Motors really did seem to be doing very well. Staff members still found it odd that they were driving sometimes hundreds of kilometers to deposit checks, but in a small town, they were just grateful for their jobs, so they certainly weren't going to be complaining. Soon enough, though, there were complaints from the people handing their cars over to Andre Keller for sale. Although in the beginning, most had received payment for their vehicles after they were sold, eventually many were waiting months, and then simply not receiving any payments at all. One man, a retired pastor who'd handed over his Mercedes-Benz to Keller to sell, planned to put the money from the sale into his retirement fund. He'd visited Raylott Motors several times in the months since he delivered his car there and noticed it was no longer on the lot. Andre's explanation was that he'd moved it to another dealership that was more central, as there was a better chance it would sell there. But he would give the man no further detail, and the pastor became suspicious that his vehicle had been sold and that Andre had pocketed the money. At his wit's end, and extremely concerned that the 95,000 rand he'd banked on coming into his retirement fund was lost to him, he went to police. There, he would discover that he wasn't the first to have problems with Andre Keller and Raylott Motors. By the time he lodged his case, four other people had opened cases against the business, and the SAPS's financial crimes investigators were starting to poke their nose into places that Keller didn't want them looking. What investigators would find when they began looking into the small second-hand car sales business was rather shocking, and soon revealed that they were looking at one of the most extensive cases of kiting the country had ever seen. And there it is, that word, kiting. If Andre Keller had been standing on a beach with a kite in his hand, taking advantage of a windy day, that would be one thing. But the kind of kiting he was involved in was not quite as sedate, or legal for that matter. To understand the concept of kiting, at least as it relates to what Keller was doing, we need to put ourselves back into the technological period in which he was operating. In the early 1990s, banking was not automated the way it is today. Today, we can do immediate payments that appear in any other bank within an hour or less. We can do almost everything we need to do banking-wise from our cell phones or laptops. This was nowhere near the case in the early 90s. With checks being the major method of payment at that time, Banks were doing a lot of balancing manually. They would receive a check, and it would take several days to physically clear that check between banks, meaning they had to manually ensure that there was actually enough money in the bank accounts 
that the check had come from to clear the check in the accounts it was being deposited into. But they could not inconvenience the customer as a result of that delay. So the amounts would immediately reflect in the depositor's bank accounts before the bank had ascertained that the funds were actually available. Now, in 9 out of 10 cases, that would not be an issue because most people won't write checks for money they don't have. But this lapse in the system was glaringly clear and used by those with nefarious intentions. Kiting, in general, is defined as the fraudulent use of a financial instrument, such as a check, to obtain additional credit that is not authorized. So, although in this case we're talking about the misuse of checks, the practice of kiting continues today, despite banking automation through the use of other financial instruments like credit cards. Andre Keller was kiting. From day one of opening Raylot Motors, he was using the three bank accounts they had to write checks for large amounts, deposit them between the various accounts, and then draw that money out of the same accounts before the bank had ascertained that there was insufficient funds in the originating accounts and use that money elsewhere. This was why he was having his employees drive hundreds of kilometers to deposit checks, because he knew very well that the further away he went from his home bank, the longer it would take to actually process the transaction and for the bank to realize that the check was invalid. At one point, one of the bank managers had picked up that something wasn't right. The man had called in both Kurs Stander and Andre Keller for an appointment and pointed out what he'd found. Both men denied knowing anything about it. Stander said he had nothing to do with the daily running of the accounts, while Keller said he wasn't the bank's client. He was just a signatory, so he wasn't sure why they were looking at him at all. Police soon realized that the magnitude of what they were dealing with was going to take some explaining by a professional if the case ever went to court. So in 1994, an auditing firm was appointed by the SAPS to audit the books of Raylott Motors and all of their bank accounts. The results of that audit was rather shocking. Between 1992 and 1994, Andre Keller had kited 260 million rand between the three bank accounts he was a signatory on. Now, this didn't mean that any one bank or even the three banks combined had suffered an actual loss of 260 million rand. That was simply the value of the checks that were kited between the accounts. A check itself, of course, has no value. It's a promissory note of sorts. There were absolutely real losses that the bank suffered, and this ran into the millions for each one. But the real victims in this case seemed to be the individuals who'd handed their vehicles over to Andre Keller and never seen them or the money they were supposed to be paid again. In addition to this, 
West Bank, the vehicle financing firm, threw their hat into the ring by revealing that they too had been defrauded by Keller. He'd faked applications and supporting documents, and West Bank had given finance to individuals based on the documents supplied by Keller. Individuals who actually did not qualify for the finance they were given. In 1994, Andre Keller was charged with 3,379 different charges related to fraud and theft. Keller denied that he'd purposefully defrauded the banks, the vehicle sellers, or West Bank. He claimed that anything he'd done had been under pressure from the bank account holder, Kurs Stunder. He admitted that he had been keeping money aside and not putting it through the books, and that this money had gone in cash to Kurs Stunder. Those Saturday morning briefcase exchanges? Yeah, the case was filled with cash. Keller claimed that because he was insolvent, he was desperate and Stander had used that to force him to undertake what he now knew were shady business dealings to generate these cash payments. The SAPS, though, weren't buying it. Given Keller's history, the statements they'd received from people who dealt with him and the staff at Raylott Motors, they believed he was very much a willing participant in the fraud. Kurstander pushed the blame back onto Keller. He said he'd just been doing his friend a favour, and by the time he realised what Keller was up to, he felt it was too late for him to do anything about it without implicating himself, because the accounts were all in his name. Prosecutor Louis Fanikak would pick up this case for the state. He tells the producers of Die Start Tien that he'd just done quite a few really horrendous murder cases, and he was keen to do something a little less tragic and traumatic. Of course, he agrees that this was far from a victimless crime, and many of the individuals affected had suffered immensely. But the matter itself was at least more of a brain power case than anything else. And once he started looking over the mass of evidence involved, he realised it was going to be quite the complex case. Just like we learn about these complex financial terms as we're hearing about the case, Fanikak would have had to educate himself about all of the different financial systems involved in the case. He'd have experts supporting him, of course, but he needed to be familiar enough with the ins and outs that he could effectively cross-examine witnesses and explain the case to the judge in a way that he, also not a financial expert, could understand. The case would take seven years to play out in court. Each of the 3,379 charges had to be carefully explained, and forensic auditors had to map out exactly how the checks had been kited and where Keller had actually enriched himself from. It was an extremely difficult and arduous process, and it's not uncommon for financial crime trials like this to take a very long time, as evidence is spelled out in a way that's easy for non-financial experts to understand. Fanikak says that Andre Keller started out as a large, well-built man in his early days in court. 
as the trial wore on and he seemed to realize the magnitude of what he was facing, he lost more and more weight and became really a shadow of his former self. Kurt Stando was already quite ill when the case started, and he too was charged with the same charges as Keller. His health was clearly deteriorating fast, and he entered into a plea deal with the state, where he would plead guilty in exchange for a suspended five-year sentence on the added condition that he would testify against Andre Keller. Stander did this, and his testimony was pushed forward to ensure that he was still well enough to testify. He did, and was cross-examined. He passed away before the end of the trial against Keller. Keller was not up for any deals. He insisted that he hadn't done anything wrong, because what he had done was either due to pressure from Stander, or because he actually hadn't realized what he was doing was illegal. He pled not guilty. Up until this point in South African history, financial crimes were not really met with terribly harsh sentences. And it seems quite likely that Keller felt he could get off with a fine. But as the trial progressed and the evidence mounted, it seemed clear that the judge was taking a pretty poor view of what had occurred. And by the time he handed down judgments in March 2001, it was evident that the judge was going to make an example of Keller. He was found guilty on all 3,379 charges, and Keller's wife wailed out loud as the judge passed down a sentence of 14 years in jail. Andre Keller would appeal the sentence and have it reduced down to nine years. He would then end up serving three years of that sentence before being released on parole and having the rest of his sentence converted to correctional supervision. By that point, he was willing to admit his guilt and claim that he was remorseful for what he'd done. About a year after being released from jail, Keller contacted prosecutor Louis Fanikak and asked whether he could meet him for coffee. Keller told Fanikak that he wanted to have a conversation with him as closure. Fanikak admitted that it was a bit of an odd meeting for him, but the two sat and chatted for about an hour, and then Keller went on his way, and he never heard from him again. While Fanikak was deflated by the reduction in sentence and Keller's eventual release after serving such a short period, he did feel that the case set a good precedent for other kiting cases, because this would certainly not be the last. In 2015, a building contractor was jailed for six years for kiting millions of rands. Stefanus Haydenreich pleaded guilty to 38 counts of fraud and explained that his business had been doing badly and he was just trying to keep himself afloat, and it had all got out of hand. By this time in South Africa, it was clear that judges were no longer using kid gloves when sentencing financial crime defendants. The judge said in no uncertain terms that while she didn't wish to break Haydenreich with an unduly harsh sentence, she also would not even consider a fine or a suspended sentence, as there were many, many people struggling financially who did not resort to fraud or theft 
to keep themselves afloat. On the 1st of January 2021, cheques were discontinued as a form of payments in South Africa. This followed many other countries throughout the world doing the same. With the advances in technology, cheques simply don't hold any value as a financial instrument anymore, and there's far too much opportunity for fraud with cheques. This, of course, does not mean that kiting is no longer possible. Rather, fraudsters have moved on to far more high-tech means, which sometimes even shock the banks that are being defrauded. In March 2021, four Chinese nationals were arrested in South Africa after Standard Bank was defrauded of 270 million rand. The four men who ran wholesale businesses in Gauteng and Rustenburg used their 11 registered businesses and those bank accounts to commit fraud from December 2020. Somehow, the four men had managed to identify a 45-minute window period on Standard Bank's system where different day and night transaction files were processed. And as a result, the customer's accounts would reflect an, an enhanced balance. The men would wait for this 45-minute period and then shift around the enhanced but not real balance between their accounts, then diverting the funds to other banks and finally moving the money into cryptocurrency. Due to the currently mostly unregulated nature of cryptocurrency, once the money was converted, the trail was pretty much lost. Unlike in Keller's case, where the 240 million was a promissory value and not a real loss, this was actual money that was leaving Standard Bank. So their 270 million rand loss was very real. Whenever I cover financial crimes, I'm aware, as I mentioned earlier, that many may feel as though these are victimless crimes, especially when banks are involved. But the feedback I've received from prior episodes tells me something very different. I often have people reaching out to me to tell me about their loved one who was scammed or defrauded and never recovered financially, and as a result, had ill health and perhaps died before they might have under different circumstances. The people who trusted Andre Keller with their vehicles, the staff members who found themselves unwittingly involved in fraud and then unemployed, they don't think that this is a victimless crime. Even when it's a bank that's hit, that has a knock-on effect to others down the line somewhere. Real people who, due to a loss suffered by a bank, have to pay higher bank fees or jump through insane hoops to accomplish ordinary banking tasks. I'm sure Andre Keller was very remorseful once he was in prison. But let's face it, if he hadn't been caught, he would have just carried on. So, how valuable is that remorse, really? I'm quite capable of seeing the difference between someone who perhaps has never committed a financial crime before doing so out of desperation, 
Not that it makes it right, but I can see how that might happen. But someone like Kela and some of these other people I've discussed, they're really not much different in a criminological sense from serial killers. They're serial fraudsters who, for the most part, don't know much else. To them, I don't know that it's ever really about the money. I think it's also very much about the conquest, the thrill of tricking people, convincing them to hand things over, to trust them, and then seeing how long they can successfully continue the deception. As the world economy goes through a dip and ordinary people become more and more desperate, Scammers and fraudsters are going to prey on that. And just like violent predators, they definitely don't come with a label on their foreheads. So if it seems too good to be true, that's probably because someone's flying a kite. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, Thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. Mm-hmm.